0: I loved reading Yuval Levin's new book, A Time to Build, which is all about institutions in our common American life, the good, the bad, and maybe the possible. Yuval is Editor-in-Chief of National Affairs and Vice President of the American Enterprise Institute, where he directs the Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies program. I found this to be one of the richer, Big Think conversations we've had on the podcast, and I hope you will too. He's one part social critic, one part prophet, and entirely brilliant about the essential role that institutions play and will play in any renewal that could better our local and national life, even today. The recent book, Alienated America by Tim Carney, a journalist at the Washington Examiner and an AEI colleague of you all's who shares many of his sympathies, includes a wonderful, memorable story of the light coming on with respect to how institutions work in real life. Have you heard this? Last year, one night at four in the morning, Tim found himself racing to the PICU, the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit, shortly after his 11-month-old daughter stopped breathing in the night. An intense week played out, and as it did, he and his wife Katie realized gradually, but deliberately, that it was their institutional ties that carried them through the trauma that followed. Journalism colleagues from The Examiner brought Barbecue, a libertarian organization where Tim was a board member, sent a Grubhub gift card for food delivery service. Family members brought over chicken pot pie. Baseball teammates from a son's team coordinated kid playdates after school. And church friends covered the carpool. When you're down and out, your friends matter. But typically, those friends come from institutional ties. Of course, most of us have a basic awareness of this, even in spite of the ways in which our major institutions are faltering. And that brings us to the major insights in Yuval's book. First, he says, institutions shape us more so than we often think. From family life to Congress, from the university campus to religion, and differently to the military, it's through our institutions that we learn right from wrong. But today, we're flirting with fire, turning many of our institutions, quote, from molds that shape us into platforms where we can perform. The book has all sorts of examples. And all talks today on the podcast about Congress, the presidency, campus life, journalism, Religion. Too often, whether we're posting an image-assuaging picture to Facebook, or perhaps as a journalist taking substantial time to grow a Twitter following, we pivot all too easily from basic duty, solidarity, responsibility, and decency that puts the focus on the other, not self. From religion to politics, Yuval's examples are hard to disagree with. A second major insight is that the future really is contingent upon our choices. This may sound like a truism, but Yuval argues that our institutions right now, while vulnerable, can get stronger. It's a time to build, even if our politics, for example, are approaching the end of a chapter before eventually, whether in a year or five years, turning towards something new.
1: There's something of a last gasp feel about this moment in American politics, and it's not entirely clear what the next phase looks like, but I think that it will have a lot to do with articulating and acting out this desire for solidarity that we've just paid too little attention to in modern America.
0: Perhaps especially for those of us listening in from Washington, New York, or Los Angeles, I hear all encouraging us to think beyond the short-term politics box. What's politics for anyway? Politics is supposed to make the future a little less bad than it otherwise might be, he says. But when it comes to politics, and even to journalism or religion, Yuval doesn't waste one word in his diagnosis, his prescription, and ultimately his invitation. It's his third book, and Yuval's written a great one. Enjoy the conversation. Thanks you all for doing this, and we're missing Tim Carney, author of *Alienated America* and *Here in and a, Spirit*. He's a *Here in Spirit*, yeah, yeah. He's probably in some kind of form, <laughs> writing a piece for family. Maybe you could just start off by telling us a little bit about why you wrote this book, what you saw, and why is it that we perhaps no longer seem to trust our institutions? Like, that?
1: yeah, well, thank you. This book really starts from the kind of social crisis we're living through in some ways now. a Crisis that is, in one respect, very obvious. You see it in polarization in politics, you see it in the culture wars we have, you see it in the personal lives of a lot of Americans in the form of alienation and isolation, even increases in suicide rates and opioid use. And yet, it's actually not easy to say exactly how these problems are related to each other and what they're rooted together. I think it's not easy because we tend to look for diagnoses in very individualistic sorts of concepts we ask ourselves, how's the economy doing? Are people healthy and safe? And they are, and the economy is doing well. The problem we're living with is really a problem in our sociality, in the ways that Americans come together. And that means in particular that it requires us to see that social life depends on functional institutions, not just a bunch of people holding hands, but people structured in particular ways to achieve important purposes in society. Our institutions give us roles, give us a kind of form and shape to what we do together. And a lot of the brokenness we find in American life now is a brokenness of institutions. In the book, I define institutions as the forms of our common life, the shapes and the structures. And form is important because our institutions also form us and form the people in them. And I think as a set of failures of formation that we now confront this kind of problem, and that does also have a lot to do with why we've lost trust in institutions. We've lost that sense that they form us and that they form the people in them to be trustworthy and reliable and effective.
0: Hmm. Is some of that change, do you think, driven by technology or economics? I-, I recall reading, for example, a book called Platform Revolution mm-hmm. some time ago that said that you know there were producers that controlled what was available a generation ago but today it's really a question of whether the consumers will allow you onto their platform uber and the like technology now connects us all in a different way and yet there's this sort of alienation disconnect as you were describing earlier is technology and economics a significant driver in the story or is it something different
1: well i think technology has a lot to do with it but we should be careful not to assign too much to technology technology ultimately serves us and it pushes in the direction that our culture is pushing I think of it more as an effect than a cause. I would say there are a couple of drivers of a loss of confidence in institutions. Some of them are very obvious, like institutional corruption, people using institutional positions to advance their own ends in corrupt ways, or just incompetence. We find that some of our institutions just aren't very good at what they're supposed to do, and that drives people to lose confidence in them. But those things are not new, right? They're always evident in the experience of any society. And they don't explain why we've had this incredible collapse in trust in institutions. I think something that is a little newer is the sense that our institutions don't seek to be formative. They're not trying to shape us. They're trying to elevate us, to display us, to let us express ourselves. And that move from formative to performative institutions has a lot to do with why we've lost trust in some important American institutions. And the few exceptions to that pattern really prove the rule because the military, for example, an institution we do still trust, is unabashedly formative. It clearly shapes people. And that's a big part of why we continue to trust it. We look at a lot of our other institutions, and they just seem like they're stages for people to stand on and yell about what they don't like in American society. And that kind of institutions is inherently harder to trust. I think technology has exacerbated this. It's allowed us to treat everything as a platform. It's also given us platforms. You can just go on Twitter and spout off, regardless of your institutional responsibilities. But I don't think that the technology is ultimately at the bottom of that story, There's a fragmentation and liberalization of American life that has been going on for decades and that is the reason why we use our technology the way we do.
0: Hmm. I've heard you elsewhere talk about somebody who studied political theory, political philosophy, how we get started, that there's a Lockean story, a Rousseauian story to how things get going in society, especially uh, born free and everywhere in chains. Mm -hmm. But yet, in real life, that isn't so much the way it works. Can you talk about that in terms of the origin story for how eventually a state should emerge, born into families? How does the real-life experience counter some of the claims that, that perhaps we could be more performative?
1: Well, I think that at the bottom of a lot of our culture war differences, there is really a debate about anthropology. What kind of being is the human being? And I think there is one side of that argument where I tend to find myself, which says that human beings start out imperfect, fallen, sinful, wayward, whatever it is we want to say, and we require formation before we can be free. And that formation is what our institutions do for us, from the family and the community and religion on up. There's another argument that says human beings start out free, and they're oppressed by social institutions that are meant to empower other people over them. And what we require from a politics that's oriented to justice is liberation. Liberation from those forms of oppression that could then let us be free. These are both ways of describing a liberal society. They're not outside the framework of our politics. This disagreement defines the framework of our politics. It's two different ideas of what the free society is for that are at war with each other in an amazing number and array of different places. And oftentimes, what we're really arguing about is whether what we want from our politics are means of formation or means of liberation. If you think that the human person needs formation, you have low expectations of the human person. You think that left to themselves, things will fall apart very quickly. You tend to be impressed with institutions that promote order and justice and freedom over time. You want to preserve those, conserve those. You're probably some kind of conservative if you think that ultimately what we need is liberation, then you expect that left to themselves, things will go great. And the reason they don't is because some people are well served by an unjust social order. And so you want to break down that kind of order. You think we could do better starting from scratch. And you're probably some kind of progressive of one sort or another. That difference runs very, very deep in our society. It defines a lot of political questions that on the surface don't seem like they run that deep. And The argument of this book is very much rooted in one answer to that question. I mean, if we need functional institutions to form us, then we require a certain kind of institution. If all we need is status and a way to express ourselves, then our requirements of institutions are much lower and much lesser. So I understand this problem through a lens that is a fundamentally conservative lens. I think the argument can appeal to people who aren't themselves on the right, but ultimately... There is a left-right difference here. And to see our problems through this institutional lens is to see them from the perspective of someone who takes the need for formative institutions seriously.
0: So maybe since we're in Washington, talk a little bit about how that plays out in the public square. In our politics, it used to be that people would go to the Senate to be elected to be contributing to the long-term policy solutions for the country and améliorating our circumstances. But instead, today, you're describing in the book a different trend, whether from the Congress or from the White House. How does yep. this play out?
1: Well, I think that looking at it in, in these terms of formative and performative can help to understand Congress and the presidency some. It's certainly the case that there is such a thing, such a human type as a member of Congress who can be effective within the institution in moving legislation and advancing policy agenda – in enabling compromise and conciliation which ultimately is really what congress is for in our system but a lot of members of congress now understand the institution as a platform for expression and see their role as channeling and giving voice to the frustrations of the voters who sent them there and will use congress as a way to build a social media following and a, and get a better time slot on cable news or talk radio in order to express the frustration of the people who sent them there. A lot of their frustration is about Congress. So they stand as outsiders looking at Congress and talking about it. Ted Cruz, every day after the end of the impeachment trial over the last few weeks, after each day of the trial, he would go and host a podcast about the trial. He understands himself in a lot of ways as a commentator. And I think many other members do too. The president certainly sees himself that way. When he goes to Twitter to complain about the Justice Department, He's acting as an outsider, right? The Justice Department works for him. He's the president. He's an insider. But I don't think Donald Trump is ever going to think of himself as an insider. That's just not how he works. This isn't a problem that started with him or that's only found with him. I think there's a general pattern by which people who are very powerful inside our, our core institutions now would rather think of themselves as outsiders, as people standing there as critics. And that means they don't exercise responsibility. They don't see themselves as having a crucial role to play other than an expressive, performative role. That's a pattern that explains a lot of what's gone wrong in our politics. It's driven by a lot of different factors, but it is ultimately one of the core drivers of our loss of confidence in these institutions and of their dysfunction. I remember a chart
0: that a history professor shared with our class as undergraduates in the mid-1990s that had on the surface events – what actually happens, what you read about in the news. Mm -hmm. Then underneath it, it had institutions. And then underneath that, it had cultural values. And underneath that, still it had Weltanschauung or worldview or spiritual realities. The idea was that in some ways, human history, the big story has a certain fundamentally spiritual character as well as one that is manifested through institutions and that plays itself out on the surface. And of course it, it works itself up and down. So as you say in the book, habits that you begin to pick up uh, on the surface and practice, you get kind of addicted to that that Twitter feed, begin to sort of shape your values and vice versa, both things. Is that a legit place for institutions? How do you see institutions fitting as a snapshot of history
1: or as a snapshot of culture vis-a-vis the person with his or her platform? I think that is one plausible way of thinking about the relationship of institutions to events and to underlying cultural forces. Ultimately, institutions, to say that they are forms is to say that they're the place where substance meets purpose, right? There are ways we achieve important ends, all kinds of important ends, from educating our children and enforcing the law to making products and services that we want in the marketplace. We achieve them through a certain kind of formation of human beings within them, right? They give everybody a role, uh, a part to play but institutions are also always moved by ideals by some standards some core purpose and the way in which they form the people inside them has a lot to do with that ideal they provide certain rules and patterns and structures of action that allow us to distinguish responsible from irresponsible people that's a lot of what our institutions do for us they let us tell who's serious from who's not who's telling the truth from who's lying who's an expert and who's just an amateur when our institutions get flattened in the way they have now and all become indistinguishable from each other and interchangeable platforms, it becomes much harder in society to tell the difference between between expert and amateur, between reliable and unreliable, responsible and irresponsible. And I think that's part of the kind of chaos or flux that we feel in our social lives now. I probably would give a more important role to institutions than that kind of framework. The argument of this book is ultimately an Aristotelian argument it thinks about formation through the mold of habituation. We become what we are through practice over time. And our understanding of the world is shaped by our perception of the forms and structures of what's in it. That's how we gain a sense of what's possible and what's not. That's good news and bad news. I mean, it means that these institutions are extremely powerful and they can almost define reality for us. But it also means that there are ways to improve them and to improve ourselves by thinking constructively about the kind of reforms they need when they're failing. And it means that by changing our attitudes, we can change reality in some profound ways. At the heart of the moral teaching that Aristotle offers in the ethics is basically the sense that you can become a better person by just behaving as though you were a better person. As Arthur says, fake it. Yeah. There's enormous value in that kind of what at some level is even hypocrisy, right? But To simply believe that this is what a good person would do, so this is what I should do, is a way to become that better person. I think that institutions play an enormously important role in giving us those habits, giving us those models, and ultimately letting us become better through them in that way. So it's not a role to be underestimated, but it does mean that they answer to us, they're plastic to some extent, and we have to think seriously about the shape we're giving them or the kind of deformation we're allowing. So you've talked
0: about a little bit thus far politics and also talk at some length in the book about family. I wonder if we could talk about two institutions in particular, religion and journalism, Mm. which this project does a good bit of work with. On the front with religion in particular, you talk about how there are a quarter roughly Catholics in the country, maybe a little less, about a quarter roughly evangelicals in the country. And you go through a number of different faith traditions talking about the bent toward either structure and form and hierarchy in the Catholic Church or less so in the evangelical space, more across the What are you seeing in religion at the moment in the United States? Why is it that young people, at least some young people, seem to be returning to a more orthodox expression of faith? Mm-hmm. What's happening with where the people are voting with their feet, especially those under the age of 40
1: or so? I think our religious institutions are unavoidably subject to the same pressures as all of our other institutions. So that part of what you see, aside from traditional kinds of institutional corruption, which always happen and which American religious life is not immune to by any means, is a sort of transformation of molds into platforms, of formative into performative institutions. That can be especially a problem in religious life because our religious institutions are inherently formative. They shape our souls. They're there to help us take on the form of the deepest truth, and when they become performative, when they become stages for culture war arguments, when they become just another damn place to talk about politics, we lose something absolutely essential and enormously significant. I talk in the book about Catholics and evangelicals just because those are the two largest, what would we say, denominations in American religious life. You could easily talk about others. I could have talked about Judaism, though that would have been uncomfortable for me as an insider in that particular world. But these problems are very evident there as well. They take the form, on the one hand, of a of a kind of performative politics replacing formative religious life. But they also, in some important respects... They break down the barriers between politics and religion, between culture and religion in ways that make it harder for religious institutions to reach people who need the most. To say that first you have to belong to this group, to this party, to this faction, and only then can you be part of this church, I think is just a fundamental failure to understand the meaning and the power of these deepest truths that run much deeper than politics. The challenge there is enormous. The problems are very real. And I think they're connected to these larger trends and have to be understood in light of them. Their effects on American religion are especially pernicious. But American religious institutions are also distinct for being places where some of these problems might be addressed first and best. It's easiest to see how religious institutions should be formative. And so to make the argument that it's a problem when they're not is a little easier in religious life than it is in politics and is in the academy and in some of the professions. And I also think that there's a deep desire, hunger for formative religious institutions that will tell us what shapes to take and that a lot of younger Americans in a culture now that only tells them to be themselves are looking to more orthodox forms of religion because they know that that's not sufficient and maybe it's not articulated in quite that way. I think even a lot of of the chaos we see in American college campuses is a desire for some idea of justice that could have some pull, some real authority. And a lot of students are attracted to a kind of deformed idea of justice, I understand it at least, but in part that's because they're not offered a better formed idea of justice. I think the, the American elite college campus now, for the right kind of evangelist, is just absolutely right for mass religious conversion. It's not the way most of our friends on the right think about the American university. They see it as just full of, of enemies. I don't think that's right. I think it's full of people who are hungry for something and we would do well to offer them something more than the kind of fearful and alarmed sort of panic that too often is what we do offer them on the right. Mm-hmm. You talk in the book about a crisis in confidence not so
0: much a spike in secularism with respect to religion is that similarly true on the campus that if there's a philanthropist who wants to to move the needle on college campuses today are there ways to do that yeah. to foster the shaping of character
1: I, I think it's not as obviously the case on campus i mean look college students are quite secular much more so than americans in general that's often been true it's certainly true now i think we're finding a kind of hunger for justice that now is answered by identity politics and by all manner of what are basically kind of secular puritanisms that would be much better answered by a genuine religious message. What we have now is a demand for repentance without the offer of forgiveness and that's a very harsh kind of message and actual religion would be much more attractive than that to the same people who are drawn to this. They're just not really getting that and I think some of that is just an attitude from the outside that thinks there's, that the universities are irredeemable. And I just don't think that's true. <laughs> you also talk about
0: the lure of celebrity and how that can subtly, maybe it's partly because of the tech thing, your message going everywhere, accidentally corrupt or distract a rabbi or a priest or a pastor uh, who wants to sound really well in front of his or her congregation rather than shape the better angels of the people that are part of the congregation. Is that playing out in religion?
1: Yeah, I think that it it creates a drive to be performative that, again, we see in a lot of institutions, but it can be especially pernicious in, in religious life. There's a way, it's not even real celebrity, right? But there's a way that social media, especially, and other technologies can give us a sense of being celebrities on a small scale that can be very attractive and also can really deform our lives. And you see it beyond religion. I mean, in general, what we do on social media is basically we just become our own paparazzi, sort of hounding ourselves for photographs and destroying our private lives in the search of a very bizarre kind of performative enterprise. We all do this, and I think it's it's worth stopping and thinking about what it actually is that we're up to in doing that. The medium itself encourages it, but there ought to be ways to resist it that could help us think a little better about the line between private and public and about the nature of our actual responsibilities to one another. Social media, I mean, look, there are good things about it, but I think that the way we live with it now is quite pernicious and unhealthy We could live with it better. I don't think it's going away. So we're going to have to find ways to handle it better and to make the most of its advantages without just letting it destroy our our sociality in the way that it has. In a lot of ways, it has contributed to all of these dangerous patterns that the book points to and made each of them a worse version of itself. So maybe we could shift over to journalism a little bit.
0: Maybe the guilds aren't like what they used to be in various professions, but you say in the book that, you know, to be an accountant, you got to learn how to be an accountant. To be a plumber, you got to learn how to be a plumber. Journalism sometimes today rewards likes and interactions. Bandito machine at the post tracks your levels of readership and the like. Ben Sass talks about politainment mm-hmm. rather than clear, outstanding, sound journalism. So what's journalism
1: look like from where you sit? There are a number of journalists who who listen. And how could it get better? Well, I think journalism is distinctly vulnerable to some of these pressures. I talk about journalism in the book in the context of talking about the professions. And what professions really offer us as institutions is a framework for legitimacy and authority, right? They give us rules and boundaries and structures, processes that let other people trust us. And for journalists, that process looks like a sort of version of the scientific method, right, where ultimately you're able to take some pride in your own humility by saying, this much we've proven, that's what we know, and we don't know more than that. And at its best, the ethic of journalism can make it easier to trust what people tell you. What we find now in contemporary political journalism in particular is that there's enormous pressure for individual journalists to take themselves out of that framework within the institutions they work in, the layers of editing and verification, and to just stand alone exposed on a platform, on Twitter or sometimes on cable news or in other ways, and engage in what is a kind of mix of professional work product and personal opinion that tries to be funny and winning and have a great personality to build a brand, to build a following, The trouble is that it blurs the line between what the profession does and is and what this individual does and is. That is just the best possible way to shred the public's confidence in professional journalism so that if you look in on Twitter right now, you'd find a lot of professional journalists deprofessionalizing themselves in public, making it much harder to know whether and when they ought to be trusted again, outside of the boundaries of the professional institutions that they're generally part of. A lot of journalists will complain about the impropriety of a lot of what President Trump does, and they're right. But if they think about the way in which it's improper, there's a very unnerving analogy between the way he behaves relative to what the presidency is supposed to be and the way they're behaving relative to what journalism is supposed to be. They're both basically engaging in a kind of self-indulgent version of the real thing, an almost celebrity version of the real thing that makes it much harder to do the real thing, journalists just have to step back and think about where the public's trust in them is supposed to come from. And ultimately, I think that should cause them to change their habits quite a bit. Now, they face a lot of economic pressures to do what they're doing, so it's no easy thing. But if you just think in professional terms, the New York Times should not allow any of its reporters to be on Twitter, period. Period. It obviously does that because they find readers that way, but it's important to surface that trade-off and understand the costs of it, which are enormous. At
0: a time when a number of people are rethinking how often they go up to New York to get on a talk show for two and a half minutes or for four and a half minutes and where to prioritize their time, that's a a really helpful word. You've talked elsewhere about things getting better and worse at the same time. I wonder if you could talk about why Yuval event is not on Twitter, why you edit a magazine that's out every three months and have been doing that for what, since 2000?
1: 10 years or so, yeah. Yes, yes. Well, yeah. I mean, these things are countercultural in some ways, right? I do think life in America always is getting better and worse at the same time. That's just the kind of conservative I am. I don't think history takes one direction. And we have to see the things that are getting better alongside the things that are getting worse and use those to try to help some with what's getting worse. I'm not on Twitter because I just think that it would be counterproductive to everything that I would want to achieve. I think I see the attraction of it. It's certainly a way to build an audience, and it can be a lot of fun, I'm sure. But ultimately, it forces us to think and express ourselves in terms where somebody in my line of work just isn't likely to be able to add much value to anything in the world in the form that Twitter provides us. So I don't think it's a way to contribute or advance much, and I don't do it. The format of National Affairs, which is a quarterly magazine, is just an expressly countercultural effort. I, I think there is a niche there. I think there's a niche for slower and longer. It's not a massive niche. That's why it's a niche, right? There's an audience. There's a need. There's a demand. We also have to think about where we each can add something. There are people who can do some good on Twitter, I'm sure. And there is a lot to be gained by both the proliferation and the immediacy of a lot of sources of information. But we have to see also what's lost and what might be done about it. And one of the things that might be done about it is to create some forms for deeper and longer reflection on our public life, which we're just very short on now. I wonder if you could just dilate a little bit on the feeling
0: of dissatisfaction that, in a sense, sets the table for this book. It seems as though there's an abnormal level of that, as you say, the economy is doing well, and there are lots of things that we could celebrate about how far our advances have made yeah. our general life compared with our 100 years ago. Just you say a little bit more about how that dissatisfaction should exist and should motivate us either to do good in institutional formative contexts or otherwise?
1: Well, I think that we live, in a liberal society like this, we live with a certain set of theories and frameworks that try to explain ourselves to ourselves. And those tend to be very individualistic. They tend to be very materialistic. They're measures of freedom and choice and wealth and prosperity. And by most of those measures, we're doing well. This is a good time, not a bad time. The fact that we, at some level, know we're not quite doing well, and that there is this really profound sense of dissatisfaction in our politics, should offer a kind of hint to us that those measures are not everything, that man does not live by bread alone, and that man does not live alone, and that ultimately, we can't be happy if we don't flourish together with other people. We don't have enough vocabulary in our politics to describe our need for sociality and for community, we have a great vocabulary of liberty, but not a great vocabulary of solidarity. And the problem we have now is a, is, is a solidarity problem. I think we've gone through a half century and more in America where our politics was really a politics of liberty. The two parties were arguing with each other about who owned this concept of liberty. Is it fundamentally economic freedom? Is it cultural freedom? Is it liberation? Is it libertarianism? Americans are always going to argue about that and are always going to value freedom. But I think we're entering a phase now in our politics where we're also going to talk a lot about solidarity and unity and cohesion. The 2016 election, which was a very divisive election, in some ways was divided over how to be unified. And we have these different theories now floating around in our politics about whether unity requires us to think in nationalist terms, whether that's the answer, whether ultimately various kinds of identity politics might actually allow us to be unified around some general theoretical ideas Are there other sources of of unity and solidarity that aren't fundamentally political or national? I think those arguments, those questions, which we're only struggling to define for ourselves now, it's only the beginning of this phase in our politics, are gonna prove to be very, very important in the coming decades. And that we are still in this moment, I would say, more at the end of a phase of our politics than at the beginning. I think the Trump era is the end of something. You can see it by the fact that all of our leaders are just about 80 years old. Um, yeah, 1946, that's what you're saying. 19, yeah, that's right. It's, uh, Donald Trump was born in June of 46. George W. Bush was born in July of 46. Bill Clinton in August of 46. I say enough already. Great. Live long, please. But do you have to be president when you're 80 years old? You don't. There's something of a last gasp feel about this moment in American politics. And it's not entirely clear what the next phase looks like, but I think that it will have a lot to do with articulating and acting out this desire for solidarity that we've just paid too little attention to in modern America. Maybe a a last big question,
0: more meta level. It's tempting to look across the channel and see what France is doing and assume that history can be thrown off and we can start anew and that whatever comes after the 1946ers graduate from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue will, will be completely different. But in reality as you've written about elsewhere, Burke has this sense of history yeah. and gradual reform that suggests that there's in fact quite a lot of continuity in the major breakthroughs. And I wonder, you've talked about the book at this point, probably with quite a number of people. Do you have any sort of meta level, most interesting feedback, most interesting pushback, most interesting challenges, a little bit of a moralistic book? A little bit. Yeah. 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 But you know, it's not a sermon exactly, it pricks the conscience a bit. Yeah. In interacting with a lot of other people, is there any one or two things, that you've taken away that you think are also notable?
1: Well, there's certainly a pattern. I mean, I would say people react to my general hopefulness by pointing to various reasons to believe that all is lost. It's a natural way to respond to a book like that. I think you can always say, well, this just seems like such a huge problem that the kinds of small first steps that I point to, a lot of which are basically about changing our own attitudes about our own responsibilities, couldn't possibly be enough and I certainly don't claim they're enough. I only would say that they're a beginning. But I am I am hopeful because, first of all, I, I don't think it ever makes sense to bet against America. But more than that, it seems to me that this sense that we are at an end of a phase in our politics contributes to a sense of panic across political divides now that isn't actually justified. Everybody approaches our political life now basically with the attitude that the next election will decide everything. And if we lose it, then we've lost forever. And those guys, whoever they are, will now have won the war. I think that's just ridiculous. The stakes are real, but they are lower than that. The notion that we're at the edge of the abyss or, you know, the sort of Flight 93 argument, I think it's just not a good way to think about contemporary America. It keeps you from thinking about the future in constructive ways. What politics can do for us is make the future a little less bad than it otherwise might be. And we can do that. That's achievable. If we believe that everything depends on the next election and everything is lost if we don't win it, then politics becomes impossible. But ultimately, in our kind of society, the purpose of politics is to find accommodation and compromise, to create and to sustain spaces for people to build flourishing lives for themselves. That is very achievable. This country has a lot going for it. I think there's a lot of promise in the world that the rising generation is rising into. There are problems too, but we face much bigger problems. And we need some perspective on this to help us see how to focus our energies and how to think about the kinds of challenges we face. That sense of perspective is completely missing now in American politics on all sides. And part of the argument of a book like this is these problems really begin from some attitude problems that we each can do something about. And if our expectations of politics are realistic, then they can also be met. Don't panic. Just worry. Just worry. Many thanks, you all. Thank you very Appreciate much. Thank you
0: very much. Thanks for listening. And consider this your friendly reminder from Faith Angle to be molded by an institution and promote the common good a little better today.